Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 502 for December 18th, 2019. On today's show, we dig back just about exactly a decade for an interview with Cooper Moore. This show is supported by its members, without whom the Jazz Session would not be possible. There are now two levels, 5 and $10 per month. Both come with bonus material, and you can visit thejazzsession.com slash join to sign up today. Big thanks to Ron Weinstock for becoming the latest member of the show. Cooper Moore was a real eye-opener for me <laughs> as a musician. Uh, I... I went in my life from never having heard of him to having heard of him and becoming obsessed with him in about a second. I think it, it might have even been a YouTube video where I first became familiar with his playing. I really can't remember. 2009 is a long time ago. But I do remember seeing him play his electric diddly bow of his own uh, creation and just thinking, well, I've never seen anything like that before in my life, and I need as much of it in my life as possible. And then I learned that he plays all kinds of instruments, that he builds instruments. He, you know, is just a, a renaissance man. And I started seeing him around more and, you know, listening to as much music that he was a part of as I could get my hands on, eventually ending up in his apartment where this interview was recorded and then getting to interview him again at the vision festival with the band planetary unknown i think it was through cooper moore that i learned of darius jones who's also been on this show i just i think he is an uncommon human being and i was just so thrilled to get a chance to spend time with him a couple different times and to spend time listening to him play uh, in person several times so I really wanted to make sure that for folks who haven't been with this show for the long haul, and even for those folks who have, that you get a chance to hear some of the interviews that were really important to me, and this is one of them. So without further ado, let's step back to December 23rd, 2009. My guest is Cooper Moore, uh, music instrument builder, musician, uh, artist, philosopher, activist, uh, educator. Uh, thank you so much for having me in your home and, and coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, man. Um, we were just talking uh, before we started recording about the idea of being chosen and of, of what that requires of you as an artist if performing, if following this music is the thing you were meant to do. Do you feel like like you were chosen and that you've had to make intentional choices about the things you did in the other areas of your life? Well, I was chosen in a way that maybe some others had not been chosen. Um, <clears throat> we were talking about the creator choosing, but maybe it was through some others. Um, when I was seven years old, the, the preacher of the local church, the church that, you know, where I went to Sunday school and my parents went, at the Sunday school, uh, the head of the Sunday school, the supervisor of the Sunday school, superintendent of the summer uh, Sunday school, and the first grade teacher. This is in apartheid America, so this is segregated Virginia. Uh, the the uh, first grade teacher, who was also the piano teacher in the town, came to uh, my parents' home on a Saturday morning. I'm upstairs, you know. I mean, I see them coming, and I run upstairs because these are like uh, the highest people in our community, you know. 
and they knock on the door and my mother takes them into the kitchen and the kitchen is a place of business she didn't take them into the living room and serve them coffee she took them into the kitchen and they sat around the kitchen table and I didn't know what they were talking about I was still afraid you know because important people in the house and I knew I hadn't done anything but somebody must have done something wrong you know and uh, then my mother called me downstairs and and I, I spoke to everybody and she asked me do you want to play piano and I looked around, and they're all the, the old folk. They were looking at me and smiling. I said, "Well, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am." Just so she said, "Well, go on back upstairs." And um, in October, of, this was in August, in October of that year, I had turned eight. I started taking piano lessons. They had come to my mother to ask to draft me as a, a young person who was bright and had some abilities to be a musician in this town to be the town musician, you understand? I mean, there were some other people, but they weren't as competent, and um, they were looking for somebody that was going to be there for a while, that was going to play in the church, that was going to play in the schools, that would that would be function as as a musician. And this is what happened, and that's what... So they 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 always... I always saw myself in, in terms of a person of service as a player, you know? Why you, do you think? Well, uh, we had a piano. Uh, the first grade teacher, who I'd had uh, a year a year or so before, saw me as having musical aptitude, and I was uh, I had a, a mild manner, and I was bright, and they saw us as a, a stable family that would be supportive. That's how I think of it now. That sounds like a a weight of responsibility to place on a, a oh, child it was a who joy. was that young. It was a joy. You understand? You know? Um, you know? I grew up never um, seeking who I was. Never, never, I never, I had been selected, I had been, you know, called by the elders of my of our community, the elders, the res respected older folk. It said, this is what you're going to do. Uh, you know, Saturday mornings, I, you know, my mother would grease up my elbows, my hair, and my knees, you know, I had my little short pants on, and I'd go take my little Michael Aaron and John Thompson uh, music books and walk into town about a half a mile to take my lessons. On the way, I'd pass by the ball field where all my brothers and cousins and friends would be playing ball Saturday morning. And I'd want to play ball. They'd say, oh, no, no, these are the older boys. No, 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 you have to go take your piano lessons. You know, I mean, they, they saw it as a privilege, you know, to, and this is a good thing. You know, old ladies would see me walking down the street, you know, you know, coming from a lesson. They'd say, come here, come here. And they'd give you a hug and give you a quarter. And there was always this this specialness that people placed upon me that I always have always felt all my life that I was special. And when did the the public performance aspect of that begin? Almost oh right no, away. that was so. I started taking lessons when I was um, in October of fifty mm, three, and in this uh, Easter of fifty four, I was playing the, the 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 Easter service for the church because that's what they gave me right away was the music that I was going to be playing for the following Easter. That's what I started working on. And I remember all that music. I remember that whole time. Because, you know, when you're learning something new, this, this gets imprinted in your consciousness. So this, all the memories of that whole, those whole six or seven months, it's in my brain, you know. Practicing, learning the new stuff, left hand, right hand, fingering, scales, you know, uh, uh, reading notes, symbols on paper. This was all, like, very hip, you know, very fresh. And there were very few people doing it in my community or who could or who could do it is the experience that you and no boys oh no boys really no. i knew one male piano player no sorry two 
when they they were like old swing guys, you know, or played stride, you know. And is the experience you're describing, although it, it was rare within each community, was it common from community to community? I don't know anything about other communities. Mm. I mean, you understand me? I, I know what I was, what we were doing where I lived, you know. And then when I went off to uh, university, it was like in Washington, D.C., there was a whole nother world whole other world but where i lived uh, in virginia was just a little town and and uh, people would call me during the week and you know i mean i, I started when i was eight and i left home when i was 18 so that was 10 years of playing people would call me old ladies who sang opera come you know come to the church and you know play this music for me or i play funerals you know that was very difficult my mother would say you don't have to do this if you don't want and i'll say i'll, I'll do it but i won't look over at the casket when they'd open up you know i would just face the music and play when I was told to play. I read that another uh, formative moment was when you provided the music for your parents' anniversary party. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. Oh, that, that was... I was 12. The day I was 12. And um, it was a big party that people came from all over to celebrate my parents' uh, 20th anniversary and wedding anniversary. And they were liked people in the family, you know? They were, like, uh, liked. And um, my job was to be... the be the DJ for that uh, for that weekend because it was like a, a Labor Day weekend, and people came from New York City and all over, and they brought their um, album albums, you know, and uh, we borrowed a, a stereo set which was very new. You understand, hi-fi you know, hi uh, stereophonic sound was new to hear a sound and two uh, high fidelity hearing bass, real bass. Not just, I mean, real bass, and this is a very new. And um, so my job was to play all this music, and I played Ahmad Jamal, which blew me away, and I heard uh, Mingus, which was turned me around completely, and then all kinds of uh, bassy and Duke and, 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 and Brubeck, all kinds of music I'd never heard before. Never. I mean, I'd heard some, you know, some big band stuff on, on, on TV, you know, but this is to hear, be able to. Put the needle where you wanted to put it, you know, and, and hear it again and again and again and again and again, hearing it over and over until you could you could whistle the solos, you know, you could sing the lines. And I was twelve, and I made the decision that that's what I wanted to do. So another, so I, I knew from the time I was eight I was going to play music, and when I was twelve I knew what kind of music I was going to play, and I knew where I was going to go. I was going to come to New York. You know, and be who these people were, and that's what I've done. You know, 
What was it about Mingus that turned you around? Well, you know, Mingus had a groove. He had a, well, we're talking about bass again. You had that bottom, and he had a groove. I, he had a lot of humor, too. There's a lot of humor in Mingus. Uh, uh, the lines were were beautiful. They were uh, quirky. Um, that's pretty much it. Uh, just just fresh and new and you know, and then you understand. I think there was the artwork on the Columbia LPs. That that was very attractive. Often you, you would buy a um, a recording because of the artwork on 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 a, a LP. I remember buying a Joan Baez record because I thought she was beautiful. You know, I'm going to buy this, and then I got home and said, "Wow, she has a beautiful voice too." You know, <laughs> <laughs> you understand. You know, and again, you know, I'm living in a place where it was rare. The music, I mean, you could get uh, pop music, but jazz was rare. So every now and then, you'd look in a bin, and there would be something for, um, that was. Otherwise, I had to, you know, hitchhike or not hitchhike. I'd take a ground bus into uh, Washington D.C. to buy music, which was 40 miles each way. You know, and that was difficult to do. You know, when you were a kid and you didn't have a lot of money. You said when uh, people brought albums to your parents' anniversary party that some of them came from New York. So did you, you oh, have family in this area, or you mean oh, the yeah, albums? Oh yes, a lot of family. Okay, a lot of family. Mm-hmm. You look up on the wall; these these are pictures of family, and many of the people up top on the uh, the anniversary picture of my grandparents—they're all from here. In fact, that picture was taken here. So yes, there are lots of people here. This was a place that um, uh, I, I pretty much always knew I was going to come. Why? Uh, what what in your your background or in your family made it seem uh, achievable to become a musician? I think uh, uh, it it was considered um, a high calling mm. by my mother and my father. I, I think that's one of the one. Of, it was just thought of as being a high calling, and that when I showed aptitude and ability, they totally supported it, totally supported it, and and loved to show me off. You know, and and I liked. I used to enjoy that. At times, my father would come home drunk with his with his buddies, and they'd sit around the kitchen table drinking beer, and and I'd be upstairs, and they'd call, he, they'd call me downstairs to play for them, but they'd always pay me. You understand? They'd always pay me, and that was something too. You know, and all the you understand, all of his friends were proud of me. So I pretty much got it that this was a good thing, you know, and I think of it as a good thing. What I do is a good thing. But also in the nature of service, you know, I never had the thinking of being a star or being an, or, or even now of being an artist, you know, when I was telling you about playing the birthday party last night for um, David McReynolds with, um, 
Where in Parker, it was that was the kind of call I would get. Come play for 15 minutes for so-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so's party, and you go and you play and you go. You dress up, you know, you go play, and that was, that was, that's the gig, you know. And it wasn't a thing about someone's going to review you or hear you or you're going to be on the radio. It was just, this is a gig, and go do that job. It sounds like music and respect were very closely aligned to your whole life, both a sense of self-worth and respect of the community around you. You mean from people in the community? Absolutely, both from people in the community and a sense of kind of your own self-worth, that do, doing this is a, no, a worthwhile so, uh, pursuit. Uh, uh, when, when, when everyone around, around you thinks highly of you, it's difficult not for you to think highly of yourself, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, I did get older and always wondered why, why, just as we was talking about Jackie McLean earlier, why me, why me? And then you can doubt that. You know, you can go periods, go through periods of, of doubting why me, why was I chosen to do this? You know, why am I in this position? But you really have to get rid of that. And you have to, you know, um, uh, believe in the assumption that others and that you have made about yourself and continue on and just go on. So when you left uh, your hometown of Virginia, you went to a Catholic, Catholic university, university right, mm -hmm. in Washington. Mm -hmm. And what was that experience like? Oh, that was a horror. <laughs> Except uh, it was a horror. I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're still talking about a very conservative place, a very conservative place. And um, people who had no, no understanding of, of uh, the, the tradition that I was from. But it, it was, I can understand it now. You know, this was... Um, in in the freshman class, there were like uh, four black students, and in the school there might have been in the undergraduate school there might have been seven, and in the music department there was I was the only one, so there was no no I learned a lot I can't say that I didn't learn a lot I learned a lot about um, uh, the, the 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 tradition of of uh, liturgical music well, I learned a lot I mean I sang a lot of uh, you know, uh, Ma uh, Palestrina and Delasu and all kinds of um, uh, cantatas and oratorios. You know, I thought that was a good thing. But they had n not a lot to teach me about what I wanted to do. And I stayed there for three years and that was it. I, I did have a great, I, did have, I can say I had some great teachers who were, who were not, um, uh, they, they didn't really care about um, what I wanted to do, but they were able to help me along. Uh, Dorothy Skidmore, who was my flute teacher, great, great person, great, great player and a great teacher. Uh, it, um, I still play flute, and every day I play flute, I think about her. We're talking about 40-plus you know, years ago. You know, still thinking about your, your, your teacher that you had 40-some years ago, because she's still in my brain giving me instruction about my breathing, my posture, my phrasing, etc. Great teacher, if they can stay with you that long. Um, a man who, who, uh, who uh, Michael Cordovano, I think he's still there now, a man who I had great problems with, but I, had, I thought he was a great teacher and I learned a lot. But I thought he was a very, very racist man, he, and he even showed it publicly in, in rehearsal once, and, uh, which uh, prompted me to quit that school and go to Boston and go to the, Ber go to the Berkeley School of Music. But that was the reason why I left. I had a, a run-in with uh, the man who, person who I thought was my best teacher there because of my politics at the time. You know, it was the, during the Vietnam War, and I would, uh, every um, Thursday, participate in the silent vigil on the mall. 
and he walked by and saw me one day. And and as I walked into uh, the, the choir rehearsal, he he did. He was an Italian guy. He did the, the you know the fingers under the chin and threw his fingers out, and said niggas. And I and the whole choir went quiet. And I said, excuse me, sir, and I, and I just left. And I never went back. You went to Berkeley, which, as I understand it, was not a not a particularly great fit for what you wanted to do. No, no, I, they had nothing to teach me. That, that's all. They had nothing to teach me. I, th- I thought they had, do, during the time, I thought they did some really unethical things. I mean, you know, I'd come from a university a music school where department where you, know, you auditioned to get in. You had to have ability. To get into Berkeley at that time, when I went there in 67, you really didn't have to have ability to go there. You just need to have some money to pay for the first semester. And then if you couldn't play, you know, they'd flunk you out. They kept, kept your money. And I thought that was very unethical. I don't know what they're doing now, but when I saw that, I realized this wasn't the place I wanted to be. My, uh, my that, and this is oh, the truth. Sorry. I'm telling you the truth. Oh, I'm not slandering. I'm telling you the <laughs> truth. <laughs> my, uh, my wife was a Head Start teacher, and I know that um, shortly after this time that we're talking about, um, you did a lot of work uh, kind of developing ways to use music in classrooms. Yeah, Head Start, I think, is one of the great programs, one of the, one of the greatest programs in existence for, for teaching uh, in, in this country or anywhere. I mean, I've been – I've taught – all over, you know, and it was not only because of what happens in the classroom, but how they develop teachers and how they develop parents who become uh, assistants and then teachers, and how they develop parents to be political to con- to to make sure that the program continues. Re- really, very important. And um, at at that time, um, I I learned that. You know, I, I, I was never had great um, respect or liking for the Republican Party, but I met many, many women, people who were con- uh, uh, wives of congressmen or uh, wives of um, cabinet members who you would n- never believed were, were as, as um, progressive as they were progressive people, but they were Republicans because they married Republicans. But underneath, they were working to make Head Start work. Very, very interesting, you know. We're talking, I'm talking about people I travel with and, 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 and plan with and work with. Can you talk about uh, the curriculum that you were developing? For well, well, it was working with the, uh, the Wolf Trap Foundation, which is in Vienna, Virginia, outside of Washington. And Wolf, the foundation uh, manages the Wolf Trap uh, Farm uh, Park, which is a um, 
run by the um, Department of Interior. And it's a performance space, and they, the foundation does some outreach programs, one of which was the um, Head Start program, where they uh, hired about 50 artists, different artists, musicians, dancers, uh, storytellers, um, all different different kinds of artists who develop curriculum to, to, to teach, develop, yeah, uh, lesson plans to teach curriculum in the classes, classrooms. And that was one of my jobs. You know, I would, I would go home and I would... Um, write what was going to happen in the class. How could I use music to teach um, children about hygiene or, or, or people who live in their communities or uh, manners? <laughs> All kinds of things you wrote about. Uh, or change of seasons. Um, washing your hands like after after you go to the bathroom. It could be anything that would... Uh, using music to st stick this information in the children, little children's heads. Yeah. That was the only thing we did things like I did things like teaching um, uh, the basics, the basic theories of music, um, which aren't taught the way I teach it. Uh, a sequencing of numbers where uh, children would learn how to, uh, how to create different sequences of the numbers of one through six. Okay, and you have many of them, and then you how do you group them and have. Um, a whole uh, chalkboard full of sequences and how you were able to remember these sequences, which is really memory building and, and how we, how we, how programmers do compression, you know, um, but it's, it's very, very interesting work, you know. And a lot of what you did was replicated all across the oh, country. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's all published. Right? It's all being done. All, it's all being, but not just my work, others. Sure. Others. And they're still doing the program. The program is now, uh, they have, uh, I think they... I think they have a program here in New York, um, NYC, uh, New York University. Uh, I think up in McGill University they were doing it up in Canada. Uh, I know in Texas they, they were doing it in some, uh, they, they founded programs there, and I think in, in Nashville um, and maybe in Minnesota, I know. Can you talk about um, how you first met David S. Ware? <laughs> um. How do I first meet David? You know, it's, it's, it's strange because um, um, I love him. I mean, I, I, I mean, he's such an, an example of of focus and um, determination. It was one of I guess it's the first week at the uh, Berklee School of Music in Boston. We we're talking about September nineteen sixty seven, and I was walking through. I come from practicing in the practice room where I was going to practice, and I heard a, a tenor saxophone. And I followed the sound until I looked in the in the window, and there was this young man playing. Big guy too. He was big, and he was he was playing. He was playing huge. I mean, he was playing huge. And I knocked on the door and and introduced myself. And I said, told him who I was. I said, you know, you sure sound good, you know. And he said, Yeah, man, how you doing? Yeah, how you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You play? You? Play? I said, Yeah, yeah. We'll play sometime. And and um, that was it. And we had some classes together, but but basically, we all, I think we only had one class together, an ensemble class. But uh, someone who's uh, always been on the path, and a, an example, because we, we always need examples of how to stay on the path, because it is totally difficult. You know, I know there are a lot of good players, but we are always taking do detours, because, you know, oh, let's go over here and play with this guy and make some money. I got to pay them. And then I go over here, I go with this guy. You know, and, and, but to stay on the path, you know, he's someone who decided, well, 
I'm going to put a band together. This is how you do it. All the great players, you put a band together and you keep a band together. You know, and that's what he's been able to do. Keep, you know, keep his band together, you know, and very loyal to people also. Uh, but that's how I met him. I heard him in the practice room. Let's take a quick break from this archive show to bring you back into the present. This is episode 502, which means more than 500 episodes of this show now exist, which still kind of blows my mind. 12 years. It's an amazing archive, I think, of the past decade and more of this music. And I know I'm saying that myself and I'm the guy who created it, but I still think it's kind of cool that it exists, <laughs> that all of this music and all of these musicians have been cataloged we have a chance to listen to their thoughts we have a chance to in many cases follow their careers over more than a decade i started this show in 2007 having finished shortly before that a jazz radio show in which i occasionally interviewed jazz musicians but i did it during the afternoon drive time which is not a great time to do interviews necessarily and i wanted a chance to do it at greater length podcasting was just becoming a thing 12 years ago i wasn't even sure if it would catch on and 12 years later here we all still are the key thing about the jazz session and its ability to continue to produce content is whether or not i can find enough people who are willing to support it right now there are i think 45 or 46 members which is a very small number compared to the number of people who listen to this show that means that almost everybody who listens decides not to support the show so i'd like to ask you if you're one of the people who hasn't made the decision yet to support the show if you'd give it some really serious thought and then when you've hopefully decided in favor of a modest donation to this show that you become a member for five or ten dollars a month at the jazzsession.com slash join. Thanks. When, uh, what year was it when you moved to New York and stayed? And stayed? Yeah. Oh, this this is uh, this trip. I moved here in 85. So that's 23 years ago. And was that to Almost. 501 Canal Street no, when you came here? No, uh, when I moved to 501 with the, the, that space there, that was 1973. Okay, so that was kind of the first block no, of time that in New York? No, that was the second time. First, oh time was, <laughs> first time was right down the street on this block in, uh, 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 in 1966. Okay. But so, you know, you know, it's just like if you're a junkie and trying to quit, or an alcoholic, or cigarette smoker, you got to keep trying. You know, quitting is—I mean, falling off the wagon—that doesn't mean you fail. That's what I've learned. You know, it just means you're in the process of learning how to do. It, you know? So the first time, 1966, I was too young. I was too young. I was 19. I couldn't handle this. You know? and the second time, I was totally 
delusional in, 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 in thinking about how to, to make it here. You know, totally delusional, you know. And but this time, yeah, reality was uh, was what I was about. What was real? And, Staying healthy, important. Staying healthy, um, staying positive. You know, uh, only playing with people I should be playing with. You know, uh, one doesn't, wouldn't, shouldn't take jobs just because you need the money. It's often not a good thing to work with certain people. It, we're talking about good things as far as staying on the path. You know, I mean, for me to take two or three weeks or a month out to, to, to rehearse someone else's stuff, it's more than a two or three weeks or a month. It, it's it's um, uh, a, a detour. It takes me a, months and months to get back to me. You know, some people can be themselves all the time, but often you 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 go to play with somebody, and they don't. They think they know who you are and. And what you do, but then you come together with them, and they say, "No, I want you to do this." And right away, you know, this is a mistake. You know, the first time I met uh, uh, William Parker, 1974, 73, and it was in a, uh, uh, an old what had been a firehouse down on, I think East 10th East uh, East 11th Street, and some alto player I don't remember his name. He, he called me up, and um, I think we had met in Boston, and he had loaned him some money or something, and. And so he had a gig, and he starts telling me how to play the piano. And I didn't even know William. He was just this skinny guy on the bass, you know. And I just blew up. I said, you don't tell me how to play, <laughs> you know. And that's, it, was a, it was a learning. You really shouldn't play with people who, you know, it's too personal. It's too personal. It's just asking a painter to paint uh, differently from how, what they're working on, you know. We don't want you to use red paint. We want you to use blue paint. You know, well, maybe if they have a good understanding of blue, that's fine for them. But often, how can we understand someone else's brain? You know, it takes a long time. I have a big problem with with uh, uh, many groups out because they have people put together a lot of projects, and I think it takes a it takes a long time for uh, uh, two or three or four people to learn one another before they can really be a band and and create the music that people should be hearing. How do you balance that need to stay on the path with the realities of needing to eat and have a place to live and those kind of things? How have you, how have how you managed do to do I? it? Yeah. It's a great struggle. I mean, it's a real, real, real struggle. Sometimes you go begging. Sometimes people ask you to play and you say, well, you know, I mean, this is what I need. I mean, oftentimes uh, people will pay you out of their pocket. You know, a lot of gigs in New York don't. Hey, you know, I can't play those jobs. I mean, I, I don't have a need. I live in this space, and I can create music in this space. I mean, I don't need to go down. My wife says, why are you going downtown to make someone else's rent? I don't have a need of that. I don't have a need to be seen. If I need to be seen, I can take my instrument and go down to the subway and play. And in fact, I can make more money in the subway than I can make in most gigs in New York City. And that's the truth. I can go down in the subway in two hours, make more money than I can make in most most places here in the city. That's the truth. And I play just what I want to play. Hmm. <laughs> well, that's disheartening. 
in some ways, I guess. And that's uh, the truth. Not, and that's the truth. And that's just not we're, – we're talking about not just the, the normal regular places. We're talking about across town in places like um, at Lincoln Center and some of those the sp- spots there that, that they – where they hire people to play upstairs someplace, you know? It's just not – it's just not – because, you know, these places are paying a lot of rent. They have a lot of overhead, Okay. And the musicians are not the, not the first that they're thinking about, you know. So it takes it takes a lot, you know. There are other people who who have more ability as far as promotion, or they hire have PR people, and and so they can they can get the word out, they can get the, their, their name out, they can get the recordings out, you know, and they can they can write articles and 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 they can travel and get a lot of gigs, you know. Uh, I don't have that uh, drive. I don't have that drive, and many of us don't. We spend our time doing what we're doing because it's it's about a tradition. I mean, I feel very, yes, I want to eat, but I also want to not let down those who've gone before. You know, those who have said the music has to be a, a, on a level. I mean, I don't think that the music can ever be on the level that it was in the past. We're talking about you know, the, the Sonny Rollinses or the, the, the Ornettes or the Trains or the Monks or the Dukes can ever be on that level. Not because we don't have the venues where we can play. I mean, the fact that we go into a space and we we, we, we are told we can only play one set and then you can't come back until another for another month to play in that same club. And then after that set, there'll be a band and then another band. So we don't have an opportunity to 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 perfect our craft in front of audiences, you know. Uh, when I started playing, or, I mean, music and bands, it was an R&B, we played five sets a night, you know, seven nights a week, month after month. So even though you weren't playing jazz, but you were playing, you were developing your craft and developing your instruments and, 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 and the understanding that you, you were a musician and developing your professionalism and, and learning how to get paid and dealing with club owners and, and being still when someone else is doing something across the stage. You were learning this, the craft of it and how to perform. But that, that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, do you know anywhere where people play five sets a night? How many sets would be a maximum? I would say three. I think I think three. Yeah, and that's I would say uncommon. That's right. Uh, uh, Digital Primitives played three sets at Zebulon a few weeks ago. I mean that was uncommon. I mean you know we asked we'd like to play three sets and 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 they said really you want to stay all night you want to said yeah we want to play three sets and we kept the people there that you can do that you can keep people there and they'll keep buying and. You have a great a sense, you know, not just musicians developing, but audiences' ears. The fact that I could hear Miles every night from Tuesday through Sunday, or Train, or Monk, and sit there by the stage and listen and listen, or even go down to the uh, uh, the Village Vanguard, and uh, Max Gordon would let musicians uh, stand by the, the kitchen door for free, and you could listen every night, you know. But the places like the Vanguard, they're very much it's a privilege to play there. But there used to be many, many of those places. And that doesn't exist anymore. And so I don't think the, the level of musicianship can ever reach where where our predecessors reached, ever. I don't care whether you have um, the university programs or, you know, the Lincoln Center programs or conservatory programs, ever. Practicing doesn't do it. You have to be in front of people every night. You know the band that I heard on Tuesday with Train's band, with with uh, uh, with uh, Alice and, and and Jimmy Garrison and and, and Rashid and, and, and Pharaoh 
on Tuesday night was not the same band that I heard the following Sunday. It was a whole other band. So, But now I hear people saying, I say, have you heard so-and-so's band? Oh, yeah, I heard them last year. <laughs> but that's what's changed. You know? yeah. So it's very dis- that's disheartening. That's very disheartening. So there, there's some thinking about how, what can we do? We have to, well, if we have to think differently. You know, but that can never be again. It would be very special, very special. It seemed like there was a time, though, um, I spoke with Sam Rivers recently, and we talked, although we talked mostly about the present, we talked some about the past, and in particular the 70s and his loft experiments. And it seemed like a piece of that was about creating a space for there to be repeated audience, the, the audience hearing the music as it developed. Is is there still some potential for that? Can, can musicians just create, since those... Since the existing places aren't providing that, can you just create your own spaces, well, people, or is that insurmountable? There are people doing it. There are people doing it. You know, I, I hear old musicians saying, oh, it's not like it used to be. But they are not where young people are. <laughs> young people are going to do what they're going to do. But in the music that we've been a part of, no. Because most of, most of us uh, have gone on in age, and we have a different uh, expectation about how it can happen or what we want it to happen. You know, we had visions in the past of what the future was going to be. You know, and for many of us, that has not turned out to be, or it's now impossible to be, in our in the way of thinking. But they're, they're young musicians doing different things. They're doing different things, um, mostly not in New York because it's too expensive. I mean, I just came off the road with with uh, digital primitives, and we, I mean, go to Detroit, man. You can get a law for a huge law for three hundred dollars a month, or Grand Rapids. You know what I mean? I mean, huge spaces. You know, they'll, in Detroit, they'll give you a whole block. A building, <laughs> you know, but that you know that's. But are we willing to do the, to to make that 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 move? Well, people in the past have made moves. They've said, "Well, you know, we're we're here in New Orleans. We're going to Chicago, or we're here here in Mobile. We're going to New York. We move. We get not, you know, because it's that was where it was, was going to work for them. But I think that's that's going to have to be if you're looking for spaces where you can run, run run those kind of institutions that say we had on Canal Street or Sam had over on Bond Street. Yeah, yeah, because not in New York. It's too expensive, and and you can't do it in Harlem. You can't do it in the Bronx. You can't do it maybe in you know Far Rockaway, but that's becoming uh, uh, gentrified too. You can't do it in Brooklyn anymore. It's that's that's you know, Wimsburg is gone. I wonder how much is that a change though? I mean, the AACM grew up in Chicago, the Black Artist Group in St. Louis, right? I mean, those. Uh, it seems like there were uh, many of those creative movements, even as far back as forty or fifty years ago, had to start outside New York City and other. That's places. because they were there. They didn't, you know. They started there and then came here. Mm. You know, to, to leave New York, it's difficult. I tell I, you know, I meet African brothers on the street, or live in the building, or people come from other countries. You know that the, the Yemeni brothers who have the stores on the corner. I say, you, you know, you know, you're never going home. Oh yes, I go home. I say, no, you're in New York, man. It's a hook. You you're hooked. You can't go home after you come here. You know, I mean, you might, you know, if you go home, you're not going to go home. Would be difficult. It's just difficult to leave here. Very difficult. It's it's the center of of, of too much of energy. It's the center of energy. <laughs> well, why else would people suffer it? Because it's it's a suffering place. You know, difficult. Very difficult. <laughs> Thank you. 
I read, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase because I, I didn't memorize it, but I read a statement uh, in an interview with you to the effect that it's difficult sometimes for piano players to break out of the patterns that are in their hands as oh, composers that's and improvisers. That's, I'm glad you That's right. And, that's it is, and few, few do. Is part of that... Did, did I mention who did? I don't, not in the interview Ahmed that I read. Jamal. No. Okay. Uh, uh, Mary Lou Williams. Duke could. Duke could. He could. But he had a different uh, thinking about it. Uh, he never saw. Um, he never saw any. He was always modern. These three people: Duke, I think, and Mary Lou Wims and Alma Jamal. Very modern in their thinking. They were absorbing stuff all the time from the, the present. You know, I would go to hear uh, Duke uh, concerts. You know, I, I think I heard maybe live five times. And he always he, he he would always play for the audience. He would play his old old stuff from. The, Jungle days, jungle music days. He would play the swing stuff. Uh, he would play uh, pop tunes of the day. Okay, he had these pop arrangements, and and it was just always for the audience. But he was always modern. Yes, it's difficult because we. Um, I don't know why, but it's. I, I I learned that when I made a decision to play acoustic piano, in. Um, Around 1970, uh, early yeah, 1970, and I th- got rid of my electronics, and I said I'm gonna. I bought an acoustic piano, and I started practicing. But the first thing I did is I I got rid of all my uh, albums. I didn't want to listen to anybody, but uh, except for one, uh, it was an Ahmad Jamal recording, because he was the first piano player that I heard when I was in tw- when I was 12, that I th- that had this spirit and freshness, you know. And um, and I wanted to to oh I know he was playing the the chordal voicings that you hear McCoy time and this is you know something I'd heard him play one thing in in '58 now here here it was uh, 1970 he had he was playing something else his voicings and left hand was different you know but he 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 had a template in his brain and he was just able to put these voicings on top of it and his lines were uh, matched his voicings. So it is difficult for us parents to, to change, you know. So when I heard that, I said, then I'm not going to try to go back and play the past. I'm going to see where can I, where can I step into the future. And it was very difficult because it meant coming up with, with my own kinds of thinking about uh, voices. And I was working on seconds and sevenths and ninths and clusters and, and how to play off of those things. And it was very difficult. And I didn't really understand it for years after I started yeah, that's interesting. It's very difficult for piano players to break out of the past. And so does building your own instruments provide you one way to avoid those pitfalls? I think uh, building uh, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, there are a couple ways you can think of it. Me, what I've learned from building instruments, and it, it used to be that piano informed everything that I did. Now I find out that the instruments are informing the piano playing. Because the instruments deal with simplicity. You know, uh, what is really necessary to get the idea over. I mean, if you only have 11 bars on your instruments, you know, a xylophone, you're very limited. You know, piano, you have 88. So when you go to the piano, you you just say, wow, I have so much. I have so, so much. And then with the piano, I realized uh, from going from the instruments to the piano that that, that I had, um, I started thinking about timbre more. Um, And I started thinking about the different parts of the piano range wise the middle the upper and and, 
and the base section and how to uh, work that. So it's different thinking. Um, but thinking about those uh, those modern piano players, Duke, uh, Mary Lou Williams, and Dama Jamal, uh, it, 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 thinking about them, keeping them in mind, made me realize that you can stay fresh and stay ahead. And again, the instruments inform um, the piano playing now. I've become uh, <clears throat> healthily, but certainly obsessed with uh, a lot of the it, playing on other instruments that you do as I've been listening to your playing, particularly the diddly bow, which uh, I'll admit I had never even heard of until I heard you play it. And it it has one string, as I understand it. I've only seen YouTube videos of you playing it. I've never seen you play it live. But uh, I, I'm amazed by the incredible amount of music that can come well, out of it. The, the, I don't know which they, – they have been different – They've, I've had a number of them. Um, um, I was playing on the street once, and the police confiscated one of them, one of the better sounding ones. Uh, for Digital Primitives, the last CD, I, I made one especially for that CD because I was looking for more harmonics off the string, so I was using an, uh, an electric bass string, which has many more harmonics. And, so, uh, and I was playing it that way. And the, the new one that I have now, I built for um, the recording that I did with um, um, Darius Jones in June with Bob Moses. I built it especially for for that band, and I, that's the one I'm playing now. They're, they've all been very different. The I, the idea of the of the diddly bow, it's one string, yes. Um, I play it with a sticks. Or I play it two two sticks, one in each hand. Or I play it with one stick beating on the bridge near the pickup, and the left hand um, fretting but not pushing the string down onto the board, but by grabbing the string, hmm. or or um, grabbing with the middle finger and thumb down. It's 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 a technique that I've developed and it's has worked. And and when I can give myself over to it, I'm amazed at what comes out of it. But it's a joy to play always a joy to play. Uh, the, the dilly bow I also use um, as a teaching instrument, you know, when I teach young people and, and, and high school kids, because Pythagoras used the dilly bow, oh, monochord, which is, a, which is what a dilly bow is, to teach um, his system of, of, um, of um, musical theory and um, harmonic ratios. You know the the, the the harmonic ratio of one to two to three to four on into infinity, where we get we get we get two against one, two against three, two. or three against four. Which, when you speed these things up, you you get um, you, you get uh, a fifths, major thirds, minor thirds, uh, blue tones. You get all these by speeding up the beats against one another. So this is, gets very complicated. You know, but it's it's the, how I start teaching people musical theory because you can teach harmony and rhythm at the same time. Can you talk about the band Digital Primitives and and what kind of people you're seeing at Digital Primitives shows? There was a con there's been a con well we we're looking for younger people. <laughs> you know, I go to concerts of this the music sometimes, and there's nobody under forty or fifty. I'm mean, usually under fifty, and they might have a couple of young people but there's something wrong with that and uh, we said you know we we believe that we are able to play play for everybody and that's that's what we've been working on trying to play for everybody using the these using the instruments um, using the knowledge we have of, of playing free uh, playing grooves um, 
playing tunes, to, to uh, playing funk and hip, to, to attract everybody. There's no reason why we cannot play for everybody. Again, I grew up in a culture, I had, in, in society, community. I had to play for everybody, and I had to play everything. Uh, we often will get to it, um, we look at an audience and we say, what are we going to play for these people? You know, we just don't play our regular set. We decide, well, what, what, who is this audience and what are we going to play for them? And I think that's okay. You know, that's what Duke Ellington did. He got to it and he said, okay, we've got some 5 and 12 and 15-year-olds. We're going to play for them. And we've got some people who are like from the, the 30s. We're going to play for them. And I think that's, again, it's about serving the audience. You know, I'm, I know that can be controversial for some folk about serving the audience. But, um, again, I'm a musician. The tradition of musicians has been to serve the people who are your audience, who, who, who are your people. You know, the tradition of musicians um, has never been well until more modern times to be the artist. I'm, I'm, I'm who I'm special, and I'm. You know, there's not been the tradition is that I'm a servant of the people. You know, that comes from uh, having been political in the '60s, where you know we're not talking about um, uh, the, uh, the Soviet kind of you, you know where we will we, you will work for us and you will serve the people. No, we no one's imposing this on, upon us. We're going to serve people. understand the the nuance then that's there between that idea of serving the people and then this idea we've been talking about up to now about kind of staying on the path and how how do you serve the people without kind of compromising what the people, musical integrity like, okay uh, you know um, years ago when I was living on Canal Street with David S. Weir and, and a bunch of other people um, uh, Alan Brothman and Jimmy Hobbs and, and Alan Christie and, and um, different people you know I got a, got a call from Sonny Rollins and said come over the 57th Street, the Mercury Recording Studios, and we would we, we, we play. So you know, Dave, Dave S. Ware and I and, and, and Sonny, we, we were in a room, and we just played. Now, I was hearing stuff I'd never heard Sonny play, and that you probably would never hear him play on stage. You know, basically, you know, I can sit here and I can develop playing. I don't have to play that. I mean, it can be totally out there. But if I'm going to get in front of, okay, here's an example. Here's an example. I was in uh, Tupelo, Mississippi last uh, November, October, November, I forget. October. And I said, okay, people, you know, we're talking about a, a room full of white folks, Southerners, Mississippi. I said, okay, I'm going to play Dixie. 
Now, I've been really criticized for playing Dixie because Dixie's a symbol of, 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 of it's, it's the anthem of, of races and the Confederacy and stuff, you know, for, for, for us black folks. It's like swastikas and Jews, you know? But I, I, I've found, did research that this Dixie as a tune was, was a tune that was taught to taught to some, some minstrel people by black sl- former black slaves, okay? So Dixie as a tune was a slave tune. It wasn't a white folks tune. So I just said, you know, when I first heard Dixie, I'm talking to white folks now. I said, when I first heard Dixie, there was something about it. I like Dixie. And then as I grew older, I realized that no white man write Dixie. <laughs> you know? And I played Dixie. And I played Dixie. I played the tune. And then I took it out. The people understood. They understood and told me later. They said, we understand what you were expressing there. When the music got really confused, because that's how they, they explained it, how it got confusing, and you know, then you know, and and, and, and then but then you played it again, but it's not how we thought of it, because when you played it, we thought about it being something else, because we saw because Dixie to me was like um if you know New Orleans music, yeah, booty, that's how I, I I heard Dixie all my life, and then when I hear it, no, no, I said that's not the tune. This is another example of white folks taking black folks music and fucking it up, <laughs> you know, using it for, for the own their own ways. And I said no, no, we're gonna take it back. So that's progressive to me. That's progressive. Progressive is, is, isn't necessarily um, what is progressive from the 50s and 60s or going inside the piano and plucking the piano. Progressive is, is, is playing something for some people and bringing them to another higher place. You know, it's all, it's all tones and sound. You know, it's, it's, it's how we present it. It's, it's, it's how we program stuff. Not necessarily the scales on the chords that we're playing or whether we're playing in or out of, out of, out of time. You know, so it's a different way of thinking. You know, so people say, well, these instruments, you know, they they have been around for thousands of years, or you know, banjo that's been around for, you know, blah blah hundreds and hundreds of years. I said, yeah, but you know, we're using it differently. We're using these tools differently. Just different. Finally, because I've I've taken more of your time than I said I was going to, although I could 
I could ask you questions all week. Have you felt uh, compelled to use your music for kind of political and social uh, purposes? I have, I have, and done all the time. But when you say my music, it's not my music, and I don't ever claim use the term my music. Mm. Okay, now that's it's not that, not that, and. What you know of what you call my music is just a, a little bit of what I've ever done. Sure. You know, most people don't know that that, that um, uh, when I came to New York, I worked in the dance theater world. You know, I, that's who paid me money. That's how I made a living. It wasn't playing downtown, playing out. I didn't make any money doing that. You know, I play in Little Huey's orchestra, and I get you know, women would play us three dollars a piece, maybe two dollars. You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> So we were lucky if we got anything and didn't even, even think about it, you know. So, you know, the, the music I've done all over the country for, in theaters, you know, and dance, the dance world, uh, film. And, and that's not known because I've kept it separate. Because there is, there is here and around the thought, well, how can you do that well and then do this well and mm. do that? So I just said, well, you know, there are very few people you know who've heard say a digital primitives or uh, the work I've done with David or or, or William Parker very few only maybe two that I know of who've ever heard the the dance music or the the theater music that I've done or the Rita Dove music or yeah have thing you thing ever heard that, that? I haven't no heard you've it. never heard that because they won't ever let it out of uh, the Guthrie Theater I was going to say I don't think I don't <laughs> you think have I to go there hear to hear it, it oh you know? okay Okay. Then I, I could I could play it for you. you <laughs> I would know. love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or 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 Penumbra Theaters, uh, um, Black Nativity, Langston Hughes's Black Nativity, which was uh, had a great run, you know. But um, what was your question? Well, I, it was inspired by the fact that, for example, on the new Digital Primitives record, there's the "Do the People Have a Right?" Oh, "Do the People Have a Right?" Yes. We started this conversation, or before we actually were. Or taping. America? Did you do you have America? I have heard it actually. I don't have it, but I have heard okay. it. America, which you know, America was was I wrote and which came out on America on Hopscotch mm-hmm. a few years ago, but it was all about you know. The bombing in in, in 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 Iraq when they first bombed Baghdad, you know, I mean that's when it came out. But I wrote that in 1973 during the Vietnam War. That's what that was about, you know. American. Well, that's the convenient thing about American military history, is it? <laughs> All of your songs become relevant again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And usually you don't have to wait that so, long. So, so, so you know, that that's political. Doing Dixie, that's political, you know. There are a lot. Of, there are a lot of pieces. You, when we, you know, we don't. We may not. Um, we may not see it as being that. Uh, Duke Ellington was the same when when he wrote. You know, uh, his sweets. You know, my people, black, brown, and beige. But but what, I still. What was your question again? I don't. I don't. Well, I, my question. I get, my initial question was: Do you feel compelled to do that with the music that you? Well, it's just who I am. Mm. It's just who I am. Compelled. I, I, well, look, look, when we did America, all right, so we book Italy, okay? We find out that the, the Italian National Public Radio was playing it every day, all day. So we go to Italy. We go to Rome. We get a great review. People, you know, realize that it's, it's being played on the radio. They listen to it. We couldn't get out of Italy. They booked us to this town, then the next town. You want him over the next town, the next time, the next. Time. So it, we we became um, so you know we go to, in a couple of weeks we go back to Italy and we we'll play. So so it became not necessary, but it it, it was um, 
in ways, a good thing that we, we, we you know, I mean, I'm sorry that America went to war, but, you know, many people profit by it. And during that time, we profited by it, you know. So last night, we again, the birthday party for um, David McReynolds, you know, old leftist, you know, Wim Park and I did, did, do the people have a right? You know, and, and one of the questions, do the people have a right to say no to war? So you know, this was a, this was fit very much into what they wanted to hear. So you know, this is how you program, you know. So if that's what people want to hear, that's what helps them, that supports them. They they are they are people of the cause. So if we can do something that supports them, I couldn't give them a hundred dollars, you know, but I could support their efforts to make them go out and continue to say no to war, or yes, we're going to feed people. You know, we're going to clothe poor people. You know, that's supportive. That's what we do. We're musicians. We're, we're here to be of service and to be of support to people, you know. Well, I, I thank you very much for your time. It's really been an honor oh, sure. to talk to you and oh, a pleasure sure. to do it. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. All right. If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to this week's guest from the archives, Cooper Moore. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Dave Rabel for the logo. You can follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh and on Instagram at thejazzsession. One cool reason to follow is that I often post clips from the archives on both those accounts. Do the peep. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show because it greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. Have a right. If you'd like to keep up to date on this show, on A Brief Chat, uh, the other podcast that I host with my partner Owen, on my poetry and more, you can subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. To know the truth. Meanwhile, support live music whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.